Hi, I'm Sonny Alvestias, CTO in the gaming industry. Welcome to my podcast, aimed at software engineers, programmers, and computer scientists. In every episode, I put one of the best engineers working behind the scenes in the spotlight. Hi, everybody. Today, my guest is Sean Austin, the VP of Engineering of Super Evil Megacorp. To be fully transparent with you guys, this time Sean and I know each other because I had the chance to work for Sean for several years, actually. It's great to have you here, Sean, and welcome. So uh, give us a little intro about yourself and uh, your background. Sure. Thank you so much for inviting me on the show, Sonny. I don't think quite so much as you working for me as us working together, passing problems back and forth and generally building something great together. So my name is Sean Austin. I am the VP of Engineering at Super Evil Megacorp. And uh, I work on a game right now called Catalyst Black. Before that, we worked on Vainglory. Before that, uh, 13 years in games industry. And before that, 13 years in corporate IT. How about you, you give us more details about your background and what brought you in, uh, in computer science also and why you ended up in the gaming industry at some point? So both of my parents were programmers back in the 80s. And so I swore up and down, I was never going to be working with computers all day. And I was absolutely committed to being a physics professor with, you know, crazy wild hair. Uh, and then I got into college. And after about three years of physics, uh, I got a little bit burned out on solving the same problems over and over again, using different new forms of math. And I wanted something that was uh, allowed me to grow to, to learn at a faster rate. I was playing a friend's MUD at a time, which is uh, an old text-based MMO, and he needed somebody to work on the code base. And not knowing at all what I was getting into, I volunteered and signed up for some programming courses in college. The next semester, I took a relational database theory course and completely fell in love with databases. Even though my professor told me that I should probably drop the class midterms, I refused to give up, and it was one of the best decisions I've ever made. The next semester, I had a job because that was a thing that could happen in the late 90s. So after 13 years of building databases for very large companies and solving some really interesting problems there, I finally realized that some games also need databases. And so I joined a studio called Mind Control Software, and I've been in games ever since. Awesome. Awesome. So you never regretted to go into physics or... So physics... I don't use physics in my everyday. Uh, I think people have this notion that uh, if you know something about physics, that will actually help you with a physics simulator. And I have never really found that it did because a physics simulator is about simulation. It's not about actually attempting to model real world physics. But what it did give me is very good structured ways of thinking about problems. And good problem-solving technique is important in lots of industries, obviously, but in, a, in an environment where code is ever-changing, the environment in which it runs is ever-changing, your understanding of the code is ever-changing as you grow and you learn. I think for computer science, that notion of being able to take a structured approach to problem-solving is really critical, as opposed to, I guess the, the alternative is like the the sort of the superstitious, the, uh, well, I kind of know an incantation. And if I structure 
these exact set of commands in this way. I get what I want, but I don't really understand why, because it's all magic. That will get you so far, but you're going to, there's going to be lots of problems, lots of corner problems that you can't solve with that level of knowledge about the tools. And so being able to really sort of craft experiments and think about the systems that you're working with as a black box and attempting to find different ways to test them in a way that is, has some rigorous thought to it. Those are skills that I learned as part of my physics classes. And I think that those are still very valuable to me. Yeah. So you mean like basically experimenting and observing and try to learn from experimentation and then apply theory, like understand the theory behind the thing by using this black box? Absolutely. And trying to go from the specific to the general, right? Being able to say, okay, I can craft a set of experiments. And I, when, as I work with this system, let's say it's somebody else's software, maybe it's closed source. Maybe you don't even have access to the source. And so you, you have to sort of throw some different parameters into the functions and see what happens. What are the side effects? What can you measure? What comes out of the function? From some specific examples, you attempt to craft a theory for what's actually happening under the hood. How does that software actually work? And then you craft some experiments around that. Okay, so if it works the way I think it does, then if I configure it in this way, then it should do this other behavior, even though that's not documented. And you try it and you see and you learn something. And maybe you learn that, okay, it doesn't work exactly the way that you thought that it did. But the more of these you do, the more you are able to craft a better understanding of how the software works and the more options that gives you. Because in a problem-solving environment, you are mostly limited by your available tools. Where are you flexible? What can you change in order to be able to attempt to manipulate the environment, to bring something up that was down, right? to redirect traffic in a different way? All of these things are valuable tools. Right, right. At the time we worked together, uh, you were uh, like the platform lead at Super Super Evil Megacorp, and now you are the the VP of engineering. So how did the transition go? And maybe you could also like explain uh, again to our audience, like what are the the general responsibilities for a VP of engineering? Sure, this was definitely one of the hardest jobs I've ever accepted. The at the at that particular moment in time was a transition point for SEMC. And transition times are always tumultuous. There's always upheaval and there's always challenges. Uh, we were transitioning Banglory to a partner developer and a publisher so that we could, as a team, focus on a second game. Uh, we were losing two of our founders who have uh, now have their own studio and have their own Banglory title that they are in the process of launching. And we were learning some really hard lessons about ourselves as a team places where we had clearly thrived on Bangalore, but places where we did not hit the marks that we had wanted to hit. And our CEO uh, has before observed that many good teams are transformed into great teams through times of near collapse and those experiences. At that time, the platform team on Bangalore was extremely high functioning. These were several of the best engineers I've ever had the pleasure of working with. I kind of accidented into an amazing team, to be honest. The, the folks that I got to work with were truly incredible. And we had a really cohesive 
team that worked really well together and that could roll with punches because we were responsible for a live environment and there's something new every day with a live environment. Things are always changing. Things are always breaking. You're always having to adapt and adjust. And that sense of being able to be very flexible and being able to be agile and think quickly on our feet and use all of our tools that we had built up over time to solve problems quickly was something that Tommy Kroll, our CTO, and Christian Segestrale, our CEO, wanted to bring to the rest of the engineering staff. So it, it was a moment for me to take everything I had learned on the platform team with that amazing group of people and try to apply it to all of our engineers. But being a platform lead is about creating the best backend services for a game or a set of games. Being the VP of engineering is about creating the best home for engineering talent, a place where craftspeople can thrive, where they can hone their skills, learn new ones, always be growing. So it's, it's very people-oriented, VP of engineering, as opposed to tech-oriented, the way Platform Lead was. And that was great for me. I really enjoy working with this team. And so it's an opportunity for me to elevate and bring a spark and, and bring some joy to some folks that I really enjoy working with. And I guess that's, that's what being VP of engineering means for me. I see. You're basically uh, like responsible of, of, of all the, like the technical department, like all the engineering team, and making sure that they are, can all collaborate all together and they have all the resources that they need and everything is set for everybody to have uh, their career goals and everybody can grow together and such, right? Very much so. So our CTO, Tommy, he is primarily responsible for tech, right? And culture, right? The two of us together set what the engineering culture is going to be at Bangalore, at SEMC, on Bangalore and on Catalyst Black. So it's the VP of engineering role is really about the effectiveness of the people and their health and safety. Like I care about, you know, their happiness and making sure that they eat lunch if that's really what's required. Right. So it's, it's, it's a bit more like being a zookeeper, right? Where I, I am responsible for all of their happiness and making sure that they have interesting problems to tackle and that they have all of the tools that they need to to tackle them awesome do you also force them to go to the gym or eh? <laughs> <laughs> well in, in in these days uh going to the gym in oh, uh, right. the united states is not always an option available to us but sure. look i can tell that you're really stressed about this problem that you're solving and i know that you really want to work on it for another two hours tonight please 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 go go eat dinner with your family have a beer if that's your thing, get some rest tonight. And I promise you at eight o'clock in the morning, you will suddenly have the answer, right? If you just allow your brain to rest. Like, so not all the problems that I'm trying to solve are necessarily technical. Sometimes they're very human problems of helping people get their own head and their own hearts oriented to where they are best capable of tackling and solving their problems. Sometimes it's a walk. Sometimes it's a coffee. Right? Just, hey, go, go walk and have a coffee with me and talk through the problem. Let me be your, you know, whatever it is you need to talk to 
in order just to hear your yourself say, describe your problem. Because I actually find that in a lot of ways, having them describe the problem to me, the easiest thing I can do as a coach is just be quiet while they describe the problem to me. And then they'll answer their own question in describing the problem to me about half the time. It makes me look really smart and makes them feel really good. I didn't actually do anything. <laughs> <laughs> what, what changed basically at Super Bowl after the COVID? A lot, but luck favors the prepared, right? And we were already had in mind this notion that we wanted to be a global team, that we didn't want to be completely centered in the Bay Area. And part of that actually was informed by our working relationships, honey. Um, back on Banglory, we had very offset hours and we would do a turnover. We would accept work from you and your team. And that was part of what made the platform team a high functioning team. And we recognized through that experience and through similar ones that we had an opportunity here to build out our capacity outside of the Bay Area. Our ability to grow inside the Bay Area is extremely constrained for all the reasons that you hear people complain about the Bay Area. It's an amazing place to live and I don't want to live anywhere else. It's also an amazingly difficult place to hire talented people. Even if you are spending a lot of time trying to craft this amazing home for talent, the fact is there's quite a few amazing homes for talent in the Bay Area. And so we were already looking out, looking to expand. Our CEO, Christian, had this notion of, hey, let's, you know, sort of seeing kind of what was going on in China, wanting to, to hedge best, because this was back before we knew it was actually present in the United States at that time. And he was thinking, let's take this as an opportunity to try our work from home set up, just test it out and make sure that everything is fine. So before the lockdowns, uh, we all went home for a week and we got on Zoom and we brought, we put together a handbook and uh, we, we had lots of open conversations about what tools were working for us and what tools weren't. We tried lots of different things, always on Zoom rooms where you could just drop in and hang out on this Zoom room that ran 24 hours a day. Just lots of different things like this. And we tried this out for a week and we're like, okay, so we're all going to come back in the office next week. And I think Christian was reading those tea leaves and going, you know what, folks, let, let's, let's do one more week work from home. And then about, I think it was like the Wednesday or Thursday after that were the lockdown notices for the Bay Area. And we've been work from home ever since. So we had some advanced preparation. We had some notion that this was strategically how we wanted to prepare the business. Um, Christian laid a lot of the groundwork for that early on. And ultimately, what allowed us to make the transition better than I think most teams did is an awareness that this was, this was a necessary thing and we could fight it or we could embrace it. And we chose to embrace it. And I think that's fairly indicative of the super evil culture, which is when we encounter a challenge, we, we don't just run away from it. We look at that as a, uh, a place where we can shine, where we can differentiate ourselves, where we can do something better than other people can. And so we've, we put a lot of effort over this last year to continuing to grow our global presence. And I now, I now have an, an engineer in, in Buenos Aires. Uh, which was something we probably wouldn't have had three or four years ago. Uh, 
I, we work with people from Chile, Brazil, so a lot of people from South America. Uh, we now have more folks in Europe. We've always had a little bit of presence in Europe, but now we're actually building out more capacity and more teams there. And, you know, got folks in Georgia, Georgia, the U.S. state, not Georgia, the uh, European country, but still seems very far away to me a lot of the time. And we've learned how to work together in that kind of uh, very distributed environment across lots of different time zones. And there have been a lot of challenges, especially with the with being spread across lots of time zones. But ultimately, the value of teamwork is that it allows you to be elastic in these ways, right? You, you forge strong bonds, you build trust, and you you do what you say you're going to do, and you try to be as honest with people about the challenges they're going to tackle. And then when they need to be off by themselves on their own time zone for three hours, you don't worry about what they're doing because they've built an established trust with you. You've built an established trust with them and you mutually negotiate a way that allows you to communicate back and forth in a way that's healthy and gets all the knowledge in each other's head, right? Because that's, that's the important part is making sure that my people that are five hours off shifted from me know what's in my head so that like my happiest moment is when I'm sort of sitting in on another meeting and maybe they don't realize I'm there. And one of them says, yeah, I don't think that's what Sean wants because that means I'm living in his head. He is thinking about how other people on the team are going to react to the decisions that they're making. And that kind of empathy is what is critical in a distributed team where we are constantly thinking about the impact of the decisions that we're making on other engineers, on designers, on just the other members of staff in general. I see. I see. That completely makes sense. Do you guys like still give you some kind of like constraint uh, when you are looking for candidates? Like, is there like any time zone constraint? Like, is there any specific time zone that you not really want to work with because maybe it's not a convenient time difference or anything else? There are no time zones that I would say that I will not work with. There are time zones in which not all team structures are appropriate for all time zones because our leadership is still mostly online between, call it 7 a.m. Pacific time until around 5 or 6 p.m. Pacific time when all, pretty much all of our leaders are online. So if somebody is completely working outside of those hours, there has to be some way of us coming together so that we can share objectives, so that we can share status and things like that. But nobody's on the moon. Uh, we're not there yet, although I'm sure we have aspirations to be because you, you can't have a name like Super Evil Megacorp without a bigger than global aspirations. <laughs> and the, the challenge there is finding a team structure that works. If I had a very strong lead in a time zone in which I am not, And I would be perfectly happy to build a, a strong core team of juniors around them, but I probably would not have a junior engineer off on their own that far away from everybody else. There's just, and it's, it's not even about the ability to work independently. It's about at certain stages of your career growth, you grow faster. You are happier in your experience. If you're able to do that in close collaboration with other people who can teach you who can show you, okay, this is the way we do this. And this is why, right? Open up that black box a little bit so people can understand, you know, why we make some of the decisions that we do. 
And that's really hard to do if a junior is offset from uh, all of their seniors by about eight hours. Even then, I feel like that then becomes an interesting challenge for me to tackle as the VP of engineering. How do I craft an organizational structure that allows me to hire really bright, interested, engaged, curious, young talent and, and help grow them in places that are very far away from the Bay Area? I agree. Yeah, I completely agree. Let's discuss a, a bit more about the technology stack uh, that you guys are using at SuperEvil. Everybody uh, is aware that you you guys have your own custom engine. So tell us a bit about it and why uh, like SuperEvil made this decision to use like a custom engine when most of the indie companies, like starting companies, startup companies, uh, they all started using Unity or Unreal or all these like pre-made engine. So like, why did you guys make this decision? Well, that's definitely the brainchild of Tommy Crawl, our CTO. Evil Engine was a project that he started as a side project while working on and working with commercial engines as well as proprietary engines at various AAA studios and seeing some of the limitations that those kinds of engines have. There is certainly a category of game engineers that are very much, I want to build my own engine because I have my own ideas about the way these things, quote, ought to be done. Frankly, very large commercial engines start off that way as well. Somebody had a really intense idea about the way they ought to be done. And one of the, one of the things that happens when you go commercial is you have to be able to support a much wider variety of kinds of games in a much wider variety of platforms. And so those engines necessarily have to start to uh, lose some of the specificity of that vision in order to be able to open up uh, the availability to work with these engines in different games. Concepts have become more generic. Things might have become more data-driven. Once they are more data-driven, it takes additional time to process data as opposed to simply executing code. So things become slower. Less performant. And so you, then now you have to build tools around that, but tools are models and models are necessarily incomplete and there are always errors. So like these are, you end up with this snowball uh, of larger and larger problems that allow you to tackle greater and greater breadth, but without the ability to tackle them with greater and greater fidelity. And to me, that's what's super special about this engine is that it, it, it's not an engine for everything, right? We're, it's, we don't have aspirations right now of turning, maybe, maybe Tommy does. I don't know. We've never talked about uh, the idea of taking this into being a, a commercial engine. I don't think that's where his heart is. I think his heart is in making great games. And so we've narrowed it down to this is a particular kind of game. We have this kind of camera angle. We have this kind of art, right? We're a 3D game. So we've, this engine has been customized to make use of stagecraft, right? And make use of lots of optimizations and some smoke and mirrors, right? Because rendering a world, it is more like creating a theater presentation than it is like creating this highly accurate world simulation, right? So we crafted a stage which is suitable and correct and efficient for the kinds of experiences and these shared moments that we want to provide. 
That's a big wordy way of saying our engine is customized for the kinds of games that we build, and thus it can be super efficient. And because it is super efficient, that means we get more art on screen. We get uh, interesting lighting. We get, and it brings a lot of fidelity and it's just more beautiful when you uh, have a tool that is specific for this purpose, custom built for this purpose. That's one of the things that's special about our games. Uh, Vainglory, especially as an example of this, people, when they saw Vainglory at the Apple keynote speech, they were blown away by its graphics quality and, and how well it can, and how well it can draw on these devices, given that the devices are fairly limited and restricted. And that ability to work with our partners as well has been amazing for us. Like, because we have our own engine, if we need to introduce a new, uh, we have an opportunity to introduce a new rendering tech like Metal or Vulkan, right? We have that ability to sit down and work on the engine and maybe even work with some of their people, work with people who really know, know that uh, uh, rendering tech well at a very early stage before it's hit, gotten wide adoption so that we can then bring that actually out and, and release clients that have this integrated uh, well in advance of a commercial studio, right? Because they're not having to test this against only a single game. They're having to test that it works against this wide category different games or you know, they risk breaking all of their clients. We have two clients. We have Vanglory, we have Catalyst Black, right? Those are our two clients right now. And because of that, that allows us to be extremely flexible and extremely agile, allows us to move much, much, much quicker. And in this, in mobile games, speed is everything, right? Speed to market and speed to quality. So that was a little bit about why we have our own engine, a little bit about the tech itself. It is uh, the, the evil engine is a C++ platform or C++ set of libraries that allow us to build beautifully rendered clients, obviously, with, uh, with a dedicated game server backend. So, right, so all of our games are, that are multiplayer, uh, currently are all server authoritative, uh, with a custom protocol going back and forth, which is one of the reasons why you don't hear things about people hacking Bangalore. It, it just doesn't really happen because we are server authoritative about everything. In addition, right, there is this entire art pipeline as well, where we use standard off-the-shelf tools where those things are the best in the industry. And then we, we write exporters from those. Then there is a asset conversion pipeline, which takes those, that's a mixture of C++ and Python and shell scripting and other tools, which allow us to take the raw art assets that our, our artists, amazing artists create and render that into a way that uh, allows us to draw it on the screen super efficiently and for a wide variety of uh, mobile devices, but you know, mobile and mobile and PC devices. And then there's a, there's a backend component of this as well, which is sort of our backend services. And that's all Python as well. So we, we have this, this mixture of, of C and Python, uh, a little bit of shell scripting and things like that. And then the backend itself is mostly Python web services. But whereas the, the engine itself, there's a lot of innovation in there and there's a lot of, uh, really amazing new tech that and different ways of handling some of these problems that allow us to optimize in useful ways for rendering on a mobile device. The game services backend is pretty boring. I've got a database guy right now who's like, 
I have the most boring databases ever. And I'm like, yes, yes, that's exactly what I want. I want our backend, the, the server part to be extremely boring stuff. So it's, it's actually pretty cut and dry API based service that looks a lot like what you would find in, uh, even in the kinds of applications that I worked on back in my commercial IT days as a startup. We have to decide very carefully where we spend our innovation budget. And for us, the most impactful way that we can spend that is on those areas that are closest to the player, bringing the player those shared moments where they can be wowed by the visuals and impressed by the gameplay and the, the controls feel natural and smooth. That is where we want to spend uh, most of our time creating best in the industry kinds of uh, kinds of tech i see i see it really gives you a great f flexibility i mean the the evil engine right you really uh, are super flexible in that and you you can really like fine tune the engine as as much as you like for the purpose of the game you're developing so you you yeah you really have a, a strong advantage here it's true we also have like the ability to troubleshoot and solve problems Right. So if we get a, a rendering crash on a particular kind of chipset, right, on a particular variant of Android device, right? Well, okay, we grab a copy of that device or a similar device with that same chipset and we can debug all the way down to the graphics calls. What's going on with the, with our driver, right? With the graphics driver for that particular uh, chipset. Oh, okay. Well, it doesn't quite work the same way as this other chipset. And we thought it did. So we can make that uh, adjustment. And that's a, that's a thing we can turn around. Once we identify the problem, it's a thing we can turn around really quickly. There's not a months long release cycle. Right? It's a days long fix. And if it's bad enough, we can, we can push out a fix, you know, in less than a week. So it's, it's not only about flexibility of adding new. It's also about flexibility of providing uh, ongoing support. Right. Right. So you really you really cut any dependencies like like a studio that is using Unity would have to call their support and maybe push them to actually be able to have some information about their engine, like their property code, right? So here you can just go in your code, test with the devices, as you said, and, and do everything yourself. You're not depending on anybody. That's huge for business, yeah. There is a flip side to that, right? Which is we have the ability to do everything ourselves. Uh, on the other hand, we have to do everything ourselves, right? <laughs> so we have, to, we have to have to be careful about what we, the problems we choose to tackle. There are certainly lots of tools that we could in theory build. Uh, we don't have time to build them all. So we have to pick and choose. And that's, that can sometimes be a, a point of, of contention, right? And we have more people that we want to build awesome tools for than we necessarily have people to build those tools. So there, there are downsides, right? So to, to the young engineer out there, it's like, man, I'm just going to go build my own engine because obviously this is the way you do it. You know, it's the way Super Evil does it. There are obviously downsides. It's really, really difficult to test on all devices, right? All the different combinations of Android, uh, in terms of hardware and OS versions. It's a very heavily fragmented market. You know, that's a, that's a challenge for Android. It means they have lots of flexibility, but it means that for us, we can only test on a subset of devices. We have to pick and choose, which means there's always going to be some that kind of slip through the cracks and we have to, uh, we get reports from community. Hey, you know, it's crashing on my device. Okay. Well, let's take a look at that device. And that's, that's something that a commercial, like when you get a, a commercial product, you can generally be assured that they've tested on probably the vast majority of devices that you, that, that you will want to deploy onto. 
we've only got a few engine engine people, including our CTO, who's obviously a very skilled engineer. He's also a, uh, an important leader within the studio. And we, we have a limited pool of people to, to kind of tackle these problems. We don't have uh, our entire studio is 30 ish people right now, along with some, some folks that we've, uh, uh, we brought in, uh, for this particular project. With that small of a studio, there's certain kinds of problems. In addition to being able to, to handle all the different kinds of defects we might and all the different kinds of tools, there are just certain problems that are probably too big for us to try to handle. And then our, our CTO, uh, is like, I'm just going to go write this or one of our tech directors, I'm just going to go write this. And they come back then after, after a weekend with something that you, you would expect to take a team of, of six people, six months to build and they've knocked it together. It looks like they've knocked it together over the weekend. What they've actually been doing is they've been working on it for six months, a little bit here and there, a little bit here and there. And I guess that's the other part of being a, uh, a small agile startup is we have some really amazingly talented people who can spend 30 hours working on something and have the same impact as people who spend uh, several hundred hours and 10 times that amount of time working on, uh, working on that same tool because we, uh, they, they have the agency, they have the ability, we trust them. They work on it a little bit over time. And then all of a sudden we get this massive earth changing shift in our, in our toolkit that, that opens up worlds of possibility for the rest of the team. Sometimes these things are planned and sometimes they're, they are matters of inspiration. And that's something that culture wise, an engine will do for you is that it opens that up as a possibility because when you're, you're working with somebody else's engine, you're necessarily limited by whatever's in the next release. Even if you're not technically limited by that, people who work with third party products, even if they have the source to them, tend to not want to muck around in other people's source code too much because you don't know what a future upgrade might break or change. We don't really have that, right? We, if, if I want to know what our strategic direction is for our engine, I can sit down and talk to Tommy and, you know, we can have a coffee and he can describe that particular tool or where he wants to go with it. And we can find somebody to, to, to build it. It just opens up that flexibility and, and encourages that culture of if you have a great idea, spend 10% or so of your time developing it and then turn it into something that becomes a fulcrum f- around which a larger team can apply leverage and shift great things. That's, that's, that's really great. I really love this idea yeah, of taking some of your time, try an idea. Like, like you said, it sometimes you can really, uh, turn things around and opens a lot of new opportunities. Let's discuss about your, your latest project. So could you tell us a bit more about uh, Catalyst Black? So Catalyst Black, it is a large battleground shooter, right? So we're talking 5v5. That's small for us, right? That was big on Bangalore. 5v5 is small for us on, on Catalyst Black. You know, 10v10 is sort of like the, the baseline 32 by 32. And we want to go bigger, right? So we, we want truly large scale battleground. It has a lot of the same camera angle sort of experiences as uh, a MOBA. You're, you're back a little bit further from it and it's a twin six shooter, right? So you're running around and you come into the match with a, a loadout. Unlike with Vainglory, where we had a very heavily crafted kit that you would come in with as your character. In this case, now you have loadouts. So you can mix and match your two different weapons with an active and a passive ability with the special transformation 
experience that we have as well, where it functions from a gameplay perspective a lot like a super and a MOBA or other similar kinds of games where you, you build up your power in this over time. And then you can, for a brief period of time, become the scariest thing on the battlefield. You know, you're only going to get to be that for a few seconds, but in that few seconds, you can maybe turn the tide. You can maybe push for the win. Whatever it is that you're trying to achieve in that moment, this is, this is a, a moment to be able to, to have that and then high five over it later. With varying loadouts, we now have lots of ability for players to express themselves. If you are a run and gun kind of player, which I am, that, that is my preferred play style. Get in, get a couple of shotgun rounds and then get out before uh, someone can shoot you. That's a kind of play style that you can craft around. If you're more of a long range sniper, we, we have those options as well. If you like to mix and match, you want to be a little more flexible so you can have options. There are those kinds of play styles open to you as well. And so the game becomes more about how do I craft an interesting uh, set of gear? that expresses the kind of play style I want to play. And the game modes become less set pieces the way they are in a MOBA, where they have a, a very heavily designed experience and more an opportunity for people to come together and express their particular talents and their particular builds in interesting ways. And that's in our Discord, that's actually what a lot of the chatter is about. This is my build and I like it for this reason. Then, then you, of course, get into the which superhero is strongest conversations about gear instead of uh, superheroes. And, and those are fun, right? Uh, that's that, Those are the kinds of moments that we really want our players to have. The other thing I think that's special about this game is that it's drop in and drop out. Uh, whereas a the heavily scripted mobile or a MOBA experience uh, requires that you start at the beginning and that you see the match all the way through to the end. And if you drop out, that's, that's really actually, it really hurts the experience of everybody else on uh, that you're playing with, both on your team and others. Whereas in this experience, because it's not really about the necessarily about the story of the, the particular game mode itself, there's now very little friction. When you want to play, you drop in. Matchmaking takes seconds and we can find you a match that has a available slot in it. We can drop you in. You want to drop in on a friend? You don't have to wait for them to finish a match. You just you drop right in on top of them and now you're playing in a match together. Right now, you might uh, be playing in a match against them. I actually equally enjoy uh, chasing my friends on the battleground as I do uh, pairing up and squatting up with them and to take on particular objectives. But you know that, that may just be me. So the, the drop in, drop out, and the friction that that removes from the overall experience, we think is uh, particularly valuable, especially in the mobile environment. That frictionless ability to play with your friends is what allows us to try to craft what we, what we try to think of as a global land party, right? Where you and I are maybe in very different places, but we can still have that same kind of a, a seamless, smooth experience that if we were, you know, you had uh, your desktop on one end of my dinner table and I have my desktop on the other end of my dinner table. I don't know. Maybe this is not something that people still do, but back in the early aughts, late nineties, this was how you played with your friends. If you wanted to play PC games, there was no internet that you connected over. You, you took your, you took your, your computers to other people's houses and you jumped into a game and you play together. And we want to craft that kind of experience for people that are very geographically distributed or they're on the go. So you and I can drop into a match, we can play, and, and we can have those high five moments together 
and then be able to retell those stories later of, do you remember that time when you went in asunder and just completely wrecked the base? And then I chased down all their bat, I chased down all their, their stragglers with knock, right? And we just completely turned the tide around. And, you know, I'm sure there was lots of, lots of tears to be had on the other team that night. I tell you, I mean, like those are the special stories. That's what's great about making games is I spent 13 years in corporate IT and I, I had to have one of my senior guys. I was really high strung. I'm sure that's amazing and completely baffling for most people. I was amazingly high strung as a young engineer and I had to have one of my managers sit down. I was like, Sean, Sean, it's a cell phone bill. It's not life or death if it doesn't go out on time, right? It's okay. And it's like, that's what I was doing. I, that was the value that I was adding to society was I made sure that people got their cell phone bills on time. Now, what's special to me about games is I have the opportunity to work on something that brings humans together and allows them to have shared moments and shared stories that last long after that particular moment. And it creates a bond between those people. That's what we want to do with Catalyst Black. It's not as core, obviously, as a MOBA. It, it's not another MOBA. Right. Because I, you know, we have a MOBA. It's a great MOBA. I still believe that Vainglory is the best MOBA on the market. You know, no offense to the Wild Rift players, no offense to the Dota, Mobile Legends, Bang Bang. I love all your games, but I still have a Vainglory special place in my heart. So it's not as core as that because I don't think as a studio we need two MOBAs. Uh, it is uh, a bit more casual friendly. It's a bit more open to. Uh, to a wider range of audiences. And, and that's to me what's special about it is that if we take a lot of what we learn from Vainglory, the ability to craft a really challenging experience, a place that allows people to really exercise their skills in a very visible way to come together as teammates and do wombo combos, right? That are just like feel amazing to go off when, when you have those sort of shared, shared moments of, of collaboration with friends. And open that up to a wider audience than uh, a MOBA will allow for, right? Because the skill differential in MOBAs are so high. So that's the other thing about Catalyst Black is that the, your ability to play with people that are your social friends who are not as close to you in skill level. And in, in, in a MOBA, skill level really matters. And if you and I, a diamond player and I'm a silver player, we're not really going to have a whole lot of fun playing together. Right. Even though we're buddies, but in Catalyst Black, you can have two people that are playing together in the same environment. They can enjoy each other's expression and each other's experience in that. And they can still have high five moments. I, as the underpowered player, the less experienced player, still have a time when I can put on a mask and I don't care who you are. I am the biggest, baddest, scariest thing on the field and you are going to run from me. Right. And that's a, that kind of moment that we can give players where they can, as a social setting, it opens it up to the ability to play with a wider variety of people. And that, that, that is ultimately what that's about, taking what we learned from Bangalore and making it so that we can have those same kinds of experiences with a wider audience. Right. How long does a match last? Hmm. I get all talking about feelings and didn't actually get into any of the details. Yeah, so a game modes are very, very flexible and very, very fluid. The, the centerpiece of the game is the transformations, the primals, and your loadouts, right? So game modes are very fluid and uh, change fairly frequently. 
and we can have a wider variety of them because it's it's really about taking the right loadout into the right game mode. We have a variety of game modes right now. We have some fairly classic ones that don't need a whole lot of explanation, like Capture the Flag and Flag Hunter, uh, which is basically collect all the flags and a capture point game, which we call Cores. Those are fairly cut and dried. You don't have to give too much explanation to players. Those last five, 10 minutes, right? Uh, relatively short. We have a brand new mode. We just released our 0.9 beta uh, just last week. Uh, and in that, we introduced a new game mode, Clash which is effectively team deathmatch. You have two different teams and you go and you shoot at each other and you score points. And the first person or first, first team to the score cap, which I think is 100, uh, or score at the end of the match, uh, highest score at the end of the match wins. And so it's very like, so that's a very different style of play than capture the flag, much more strategic. And then we have a very long form, very longer form game mode called Eventide, which is more of a war mode. And in this, it's a much larger map. There's way more people on it. You have much more ability to act and think strategically. So there's deathmatch is kind of like just, just get into the scrum, create a, create a front and, and do, and do your best to, to aim better than the, uh, your opponent. Even tide allows you to think much more strategically at this phase of the, of the match, the game. I need to be doing this activity at this stage. I need to be protecting, uh, my overseer at this stage. I need to be running. Uh, crystals at this stage, I need to be defending this particular central point, right? And there are different phases of the uh, of the match which are announced by the game. They're they're like mini game modes that happen inside of it. Whereas with MOBA, the phases were much more sort of by uh, they were by design, but they were also by just sort of understanding what the rest of like there was never a time was said and the laning phase is now over, right? That never really happened. Um, whereas with Eventide, we're much more explicit about, okay, folks, there is this big important thing right here on the map. Don't let the enemy take it, right? Go take it yourself and, and bringing everybody together for that, for those kinds of moments. And so those kinds of matches, which are much more long form, uh, if you're in it for the whole thing, 20 yeah, ish minutes, right? So it's still not super long, not like Valleys of Alterac long, but you know, it, it, it's still, uh, it's still a drop in, drop out experience. So if you, if you only have 10 minutes to play, you can still drop in and go, Oh, Hey, look, it's time to protect the overseer. I'm going to go and I'm going to protect the overseer or I'm going to go attack the, the opponent's overseer. Overseer's down. Okay. My 10 minutes are up. I now have my bagel and my coffee. I, I got to get back to work. So I drop out and it's totally fine. Right. So you can have shorter experiences inside the longer game modes. Okay. Listening to you, I can really hear that uh, you are really pushing the, the limits of your uh, evil engine, definitely. What's the, what's the status of the game? I think you, you said uh, 0.9 in beta now. So is it like free, freely accessible? So we are currently in an, an open geo beta. So there are a few countries where you can look for Catalyst Black in your app store in Android and iOS. They are... Uh, in the Southeast Asia area, we have Indonesia and Singapore, Philippines and Hong Kong. In North America, there is Canada. And in Europe, there is Sweden and Finland. Maybe it's Norway and Finland. Uh, it's a couple of the Nordic countries. So if you're in those countries or you can set your app store to being one of those countries, you can download and play the game through that. If you don't have access to do that, you can join our Discord, the Catalyst Black Discord. There you can register for a raffle, which at 
this particular moment is suspended. But if we get a little bit further along in the in our beta process, we uh, will look at reopening it again. Uh, register for that raffle, and when we start uh, giving those away, then you will be able to join the closed beta that way. You can play anywhere in the world uh, through that. So that's how you get access to the game right now. Got it. Any like ETA on when the the final release uh, of the game will will be? Oh man. Uh, well, okay. First off. This is going to be a live game. So there is never going to be a final release of this game, right? <laughs> and that's just like it is these, these, these games live on. But the, the first global public launch release, we are still trying to target this year. We are still learning from the beta experience. Like the 0.9 was a moderately large change. The next upcoming release is going to be a substantially large change. And I really want to talk about it. And I really, really can't because I think the visual impact of it is going to be incredible. And I really want to allow our marketing team the time to, to and our community team the time to to present this to the community and, and with its best foot forward. But 0.10 is going to be an amazing release. I guess I just tease the fact that the next release is not the major release. But we will learn from the release we just did last week and the upcoming release. And we will learn from those. And we will see, we will get feedback from the players. Uh, we will we will do global release when the product is ready for it, uh, and Vainglory had a somewhat similar life cycle, right? It it there was an early beta period, went through several months of you know, iteration where there were not very many people had access to it. In fact, there was actually a story that there was uh, very early stages of Vainglory. They had a alert on the matchmaking queue so that when someone would enter the matchmaking queue. Devs would jump in to help fill up the queue so a match would pop, right? So we're, we have a little bit more liquidity than that, but every game goes through its beta period. And this one, this one's no different. And I feel like we're, we're nearing the end of it, but I obviously can't make any strict predictions. And even if I could, uh, I would be letting down some members of my team if I teased more than sometime this year. So what is your favorite game as uh, someone in the game industry? Oh man, favorite game is a difficult question, right? Because it requires that I stack rank things and it really very much depends on the experience I'm looking to have at that particular moment. Right now, my current active game is, in addition to Catalyst Black, of course, uh, and Banglory, is Final Fantasy XIV. I have a job which throws a lot of unexpected things at me all the time with uh, unexpected rewards and unexpected challenges. It's nice when I go into Final Fantasy XIV that I can do a thing where it's like, I know exactly what's going to happen. It's a little bit of a grind. It's, it's a little bit like I'm just flipping burgers, but I know what I'm going to have at the end of that. I'm just, I'm going to have some burgers at the end of that. That's, that's a nice, nice sort of like a uh, release experience after a fairly stressful day. I've also, I'm really fond of the Borderlands series for the storytelling. I, there's a lot in common there as well with the sort of the looter shooter nature of that game, I think is really appealing. The hunt, the, the finding, an interesting uh, combination of gear. Yes, okay, you could try to optimize for a particular thing, but sometimes the fun thing is just what random thing dropped. Oh, wow, I never would have thought to put those two things together, but hey, it kind of works, right? Like that's that kind of discovery experience in a first-person shooter is super fun for me. Other games, which I guess are uh, house favorites, uh, we play a lot of together uh, as a family. We play a little bit of Minecraft. We play a little bit of Terraria. Is uh, if you're getting kind of a feel for this, like, like the games where there's a little bit of mining, a little bit of crafting, a little bit of adventuring, 
like those are fun games that I can I can sit down and and play with my family or sometimes just watch them play. I don't play Stardew Valley myself. There's something about that game that doesn't jive with me uh, to play, but I love watching my family play it together. Uh, so like I know all the storylines. I know all the characters I would date if I uh, were going to date any of the characters or actually play because I've seen them grow through all the cutscenes. And uh, so there, there's also, in addition to favorite games to play, there's also favorite games just to experience with your family as an, as a, uh, as an audience. As a father, right, with your wife, have you uh, ever uh, had any concern like uh, about video games and, and screen time for your child? Or like, what's your stance on that? So I have a particular stance, given that I'm... I'm obviously care about games as an as an experience and but even aside from hey i want more people to play i believe in the value of games as a growth experience the core reason for why humans play games is they are low threat high challenge opportunities for people to learn to practice some skill Sometimes it can be really difficult to tell what skill people are practicing. And there are certain things when I look at it, I go, well, I'm not really sure that's a very valuable game because the, the kinds of skills they're teaching are not particularly transportable. But there is still something valuable in the experience of improving, uh, improving in a game. Now, that being said, there is, it is important for a young person and uh, frankly, everybody to Learn in a variety of different ways. So learn by observing some media, watching a movie by watching television, right? There are opportunities to learn things there and experience new ideas. Learn by painting, learn by drawing, learn by getting out into the world, learn by playing music. All of these are different ways of exercising our creative and our, our learning potential to improve ourselves. Playing games is a part of that, but it's, it, Just as if it's not healthy for one, for a person to only consume one kind of food, it is not healthy for one person to learn in only one way. So I want my daughter to have some class time with lecture. I want her to have some coaching time one-on-one -on -one with somebody that she respects for a particular skill that she wants to have. I want her to have some self-driven, I want to go look it up on YouTube. And I want her to have some time where she is practicing certain kinds of social interactions in a game. Right? All of these work together. And so if she's doing one of those things too much, we will redirect. But is there a specific amount of, of game time that is okay for all people? I don't believe that there is. I believe that is a judgment call that parents have to make about their specific child based upon how they observe their child and their growth and their learning. If they are falling behind in a certain area, that may be okay, right? For a little bit. It's okay for kids to learn at different things at different rates. But if they, if they fall, if they fall too far behind, I think it's perfectly reasonable for a parent to say, okay, take this thing, put it aside, do something else for a bit, read a book. That's sort of the classic example, read a book, but really it's find some other way to engage your brain so that your brain can grow in new and interesting ways. Right. I agree. I agree. It's, it's really, uh, yeah, it's really about moderation, right? Doing something excessively, it's, it's always like no good, right? And there's, ton of things uh, to learn in, in this world and so it's really uh yeah keep uh, an open mind and and be curious about everything i think uh that's the thing absolutely curiosity and learning uh has been 
something has been crucial for uh, my career, my growth, my person, my happiness. I think it is part of the human condition is wanting to always do more, see more, climb higher, care more, whatever it is to to hone. And that's that's why being a craftsperson uh, is so special for me. I, I'm not I'm not just doing the same thing day in and day out. I am every time I do a thing, I try to do it just a little bit better than I did it the last time. Great. Thank you, uh, thank you, Sean, for your for your time today. It was it was a pleasure to discuss with you. Uh, is there anything that you want to say before before leaving? Like, uh, any news or any uh, job uh, job offer you want to promote now? Uh, absolutely. Uh, we are always uh, looking for amazing talent, and as I said before, like we were look, we are looking worldwide. Uh, the areas in which we are attempting to grow right now, specifically within engineering is mostly in the platform, the area in which I spend most of my time. So looking for more folks to work with me and uh, looking for uh, talent around front-end engineering, particularly if somebody has a real knack for UI and really loves creating that sort of beautiful experiences. I know you're out there. Uh, there is somebody out there who wants to create amazing UIs for games. And then we're, we're always looking for young Uh, bright, talented, uh, eager, curious, uh, new engineers in the field. So even if you're not particularly like, I don't have the skill set, you know, feel free to go ahead and shoot us a, um, an email with the a cover letter to, to our jobs page, our jobs email. And, and I'll certainly take a look at it. And just in general, like we're, we're always looking to work with amazing people and people from all different backgrounds. Like I said, I, I don't actually come from games originally. I, I worked in corporate IT for a long time. We've had folks who come from AAA, folks who come from mobile social. So if you look at your resume and go, well, but I don't make games the way Super Evil made games. That's okay. Nobody made games the way Super Evil made games until Super Evil made those games. So if you have a love for it, you know, send me, send me, especially if you're have particular talents on gameplay back in UI. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Sonny. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today. Like on, on Banglory, we, we had an opportunity to, to work together, to hand off work back and forth, to build some, uh, some really interesting systems, uh, some advancements. And I know that, that you've been working on your own projects and I can't wait to get to see what you've been building as well. No problem. <laughs> I'll, I'll show you one day. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you. Stay safe. You too. Bye-bye. Hey.